this week on the Backtable Podcast. The plug does take a while to set down. Also, sizing the plug can be difficult because yeah. yeah. if it's a large splenic artery and you have Gen 4 plugs going up to 8 millimeters, if it's too large, you're not going to get a plug to fit. And certainly I've had a case where we, with a fellow, put in a plug. It looked okay. Took our next run and the plug was slowly chugging out to the distal splenic oh. artery and you're like kind of kicking yourself going, oh, come on. So yeah. so you you really have to oversize those plugs like crazy, whereas coils give you a lot more um, flexibility. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Back Table Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on Backtable.com. First, a brief message from our sponsor. Today's Backtable podcast is sponsored by Boston Scientific Interventional Oncology and Nebulization Division. Boston Scientific Interventional Oncology and Nebulization is a global provider of medical devices. Boston Scientific's goal is to become the leading partner by enabling and developing minimally invasive procedures. Boston Scientific IOE has recently launched Embold Fibered Coils. These embolic coils are built on the radical idea that simpler is better. With a kinkless nitinol delivery wire, ability to deliver through microcatheters from 021 to 027, a handle-free detachment, and PET fibers providing best-in-class occlusion, Embold Fibered Coils give users a reliable coil option that simplifies the complex. Now, back to the episode. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Back Table Podcast. Today, we've got a very special episode. We're going to discuss treatment algorithms for splenic artery embolization. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, mostly probably about trauma, because that's usually the most common reason why we're doing this. But also a little bit, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about hypersplenism uh, a little bit at the end. But I'm very, very pleased to introduce our guest, Dr. Chris Grilly, coming from Christiana Health Interventional Radiology Group. Welcome, Chris, to the show. Aaron, thanks so much for having me. This is a, a lot of fun, and I, I really appreciate the invite. Yeah, and I understand you're uh, assistant program director of the IR program there. Is that right? Yes, assistant program director. We have the integrated pathway as well as the independent pathway, and then I uh, have the uh, fun duty of also being the assistant program director of the DR program at Christiana. Well, for the IR audience, you know we do have some med student listeners. Could you tell us a little bit about what kinds of cases your your trainees uh, see and, and a little bit about the program? Yeah. Uh, Christiana Care is based in, in Delaware. Uh, we have three hospitals in the system. We, as IRs, work mainly out of the main hospital, which is well over a thousand beds. So it's a, it's a very big institution. It has a really large catchment area. We, we cover most of Delaware, as well as a large part of Southern Pennsylvania Eastern Maryland and also Western New Jersey. So uh, we do see a wide variety of, of cases. As far as the IR department is concerned, there's seven attendings there, as well as on top of that, uh, four neurointerventional attendings, and then two attendings that pretty much just do CT-guided interventions all day long. They're interventional radiologists at our institution, not body guys. And uh, like I said, we we have a very very broad caseload. I would say we're we're a bit vascular heavy, uh, arterial and venous interventions, which is really great because that's uh, sometimes tough to find nowadays. But we also do uh, a fair amount of oncology, UAEs, trauma. We're a level one trauma center, which of course we'll get into today. PAEs and all the bread and butter cases that you'd uh, expect to see at a place like that. But we uh, we take one integrated resident per year and one independent resident per year. 
In the past, we had the direct pathway, which many of you may not know, but that was kind of the precursor to the integrated pathway. That's that's the type of resident I was. I actually trained at Christiana and then stayed on. Uh, and we've rolled that over into the integrated pathway. So we're really used to having medical students right out of medical school enroll in our program. And then we also have the integrated uh, or independent, which is a one-year program, and as well as ESIR in the uh, in the DR uh, section. Yeah, thank you uh, for sharing that. Having done residency, I did residency at Pennsylvania Hospital up in Philly. And, and um, so I got to work with we were just talking about Dave Ball before we started and then Sam Putnam. Yeah. Sam being one of your former, uh, you know, I know he moved on, but one of your former colleagues. And those guys definitely uh, inspired and influenced me to go into IR. And I like keeping in touch with, with those guys. How long ago did Sam leave? Oh, he left a few years ago now. He's now in Memphis, Tennessee yeah. at a OBL oh, okay. doing arteries That's all right. day long. But... uh <laughs> You know, both of them, you know, I, I like to say, and this is this is true, I taught them really everything they know, uh, Dave Ball and Sam Putnam. Uh, they yeah, owe me a great deal of gratitude. Yeah, we, that's on record, and I want that in, I want that in the final <laughs> podcast. Uh, I'll send that to them. But they know. They know. Um, but yeah, they're legends in the Philly area. Um, it was my honor to work with, with Sam and, and to know Dave, and uh, he's doing some great stuff down there in Memphis. Well, let's jump into the the meat of it. Uh, splenic trauma, the topic for today. How do these patients typically present in in your practice? Yeah, uh, like I mentioned, we're we are a level one trauma center, so this is something we we do plenty of. Uh, we have a lot of interactions with the trauma th- team every day, spleen or or otherwise. And and as we know, most of these are blunt force traumas. Occasionally, we'll get a penetrating trauma, splenic injury that that does go to IR, but it, it's definitely the very, very small minority of patients. And then when thinking about splenic injuries, you could have the acute injury, the patient comes in, they're stable, they're unstable, and they get uh, triaged right away. And then there's also, a, when it comes to spleen's delayed splenic rupture, uh, which we could touch on later, where the, the spleen's fine initially, and then all of a sudden you're dealing with uh, a bit of an acute situation, uh, hours, days, sometimes even longer uh, down the road. Uh, so we see both of those really uh, at, at Christiana. Splenic embo has been going on for a long time, since the 70s when they were using autologous blood clots. So this is nothing new, but really, you know, it took it took a couple decades you know, for IR to really get involved in the trauma algorithm. Uh, You know, in in the 90s, they were all already identifying defects in their algorithm. They were just starting to use more commonly cross-sectional imaging as opposed to just uh, ultrasound or just lavage. And and really, we're seeing that if they see blush on CT scans, their their fail rate for OBS alone was like near 70%. So that left the question of what, what do you do with these patients like this? Do you jump all the way to, to taking their spleens out or, or are there other options? And, and that's kind of where IR has started to, you know, get involved and now is well established as, as part of their uh, algorithm. So when, for example, at my institution, when the trauma surgeon calls me, it's usually well siphoned out already. You know, they, they're not, yeah. they're not sending me grade ones or, or, or on the other spectrum, very, very unstable patients uh, to, to evaluate. But they're usually the appropriate, we're talking about a grade three, four, five laceration using the AIST guidelines. And usually, although not all the time, 
those are stable patients. So I don't know, maybe we should go into the, because we do have some medical students probably listening. Yeah, let's talk about residents. the grades. Yeah, let's yeah. talk about the grades of splenic injury and kind of the treatments for each. Yeah, so, so knowing these will kind of help dictate the rest of this conversation. Yeah. If we're using the AAST guidelines, we were talking about five grades, obviously from zero to five getting worse, all the way from a, a grade one, which is just a very, very small laceration. We've seen these on CTs before. You could barely see the, the dark laceration on the scan. It's less than a centimeter. They might have a small hematoma, but it's it's like less than 10%, something small. And then grade two, a little bit more of that, um, but still really nothing large in parenchymal, intraparenchymal, really to worry about. And then you get up to three, where now you have a either a ruptured subcapsular or a parenchymal hematoma. You have a much deeper laceration, three centimeters. And then grade four and five, now we're starting to talk about devascularization of the spleen itself. In grade four, more than 25% of the spleen. Uh, grade five, a completely shattered spleen, which is all completely devascularized, devascularized um, so, so obviously a higher grade. The initial guidelines didn't even mention hematomas or devascularization, but in 2018, AAST started to notice, hey, you know, if we see involvement of the vasculature, these patients are, are doing much worse, uh, or if we see large hematomas. So in 2018, they they modified it and add the hematoma sizes, added the stuff about the devascularized portions of the spleen as to better triage their patients. And even the world, there's a, a world uh, organization of emergency surgery also has a, a grading system, which I like even more. It's, it's simpler, which I, I always prefer. It's only uh, four grading classes. It kind of lumps the lower grade AAST together into a, a one and then as it gets higher, obviously more vascular involvement, but their grade four is just anybody who's unstable, which okay. which makes sense, right? So you could have a, a one centimeter laceration, but if the patient's unstable or not doing well, then that's right. not going to be the same as a patient who has a one centimeter laceration and is rock solid. So so their their grading system brings in more of the clinical. Uh, side of things a little bit, which I which I really do like. So, how is surgery? How is trauma surgery deciding whether or not to send them to IR or or take them to the OR? Is it based off of whether stable versus unstable? So, in the most simplest form, you know, I always tell my residents if it's a spleen that's unstable, those should be going to the OR. If it's a spleen that's stable, those are being the ones that are considered for IR. Now, that's very oversimplified. In fact, yeah. there's like a UMass study from, I think, this year or maybe last year that, that you know, they were taking unstables and stables to the IR suite and, and the complications yeah. and mortality were the same. So, you know, there are, there are exceptions to that rule. But in general, we're talking about an AAST 1, uh, you know, even a 2 through 5. If they're stable, you can do observation. If it's a higher grade, you take them to IR. If they're unstable, they pretty much automatically go to surgery. Now, have I done unstable patients um, before in IR? Sure. Let's say yeah. there's a poor operative candidate, or or there's some other extenuating circumstance. Um, you know, you just have to you have to take each case by itself. 
And then if you consider, and so I, I said I'd mention this, Pete's patients. So Pete's patients, it's a little different algorithm. Everything kind of shifts to the left. So no matter mm-hmm. what their grade is, you're pretty much monitoring them. Um, okay. you're, you're not really, as long as they're stable. So it doesn't yeah. matter what the size of their hematoma is. Do they have a big, you know, perisplenic uh, subcapsular hematoma? It doesn't really matter. You watch those. And only if they start to demonstrate that they're not, you know, improving clinically, would you even consider embolization? So uh, the criteria is even stricter for the for those type of patients. Are, are the PEDS patients more likely to go for embolization versus surgery if they're unstable? They're more likely to do nothing. They're they're more likely <laughs> to observe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's yeah. and it's very rare. And then if they're if they're largely unstable, yeah, they're they're probably going to go to the OR. So IR's role okay. gets crunched a little bit in the middle. Uh, okay. Again, this is all very institutionally dependent. A lot of studies have looked at this, comparing institution versus institution, and everybody has a little bit of a different algorithm. But yeah. but definitely, that's the trend uh, that's seen out there. Okay, but there's plenty of data in the trauma literature telling it what we need to do. They have meta analysis with like ten thousand patients looking at grade four and fives, and demonstrating a, a, a much much improved salvage rate with doing embolization versus just observation. Okay, in the peds population. In the adult population. Oh, in the adult, smaller okay. studies in the peds population. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and and so. Let's take a hypothetical from here. It's a Monday. It's, uh, you know, 4 o'clock p.m. And, you know, the trauma surgeon runs in and says, hey, we got a grade three trauma, uh, splenic trauma, splenic laceration. Can you embolize it? Can you walk through what you're, what you're doing for the audience at that point? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So most of these cases uh, were going femoral, although I, I do do radial as well. And, you know, it depends on kind of what the preoperative uh, CT looks like. But in general, uh, we're talking about a femoral access, five French sheath uh, going up into the splenic artery with a primary curve such as a C2. You could also use a reverse curve catheter. There's nothing wrong with that. I like to track it out in the case of a C2 into the splenic artery uh, as best mm-hmm. I can to actually uh, get a nice picture, you know, stabilize my access and and then do a couple runs. Depending on what I see, I, I'm deciding whether or not to just do a distal, do a proximal, do both uh, maybe, and also deciding what um, my embolic agent is going to be. There's a lot of options out there now, which which is which is kind of fun. Uh, you know, we use everything from coils uh, to gel foam to obviously uh, amplets or plugs. There's also uh, some Terumo plugs out there and the endovascular occlusion device. So so there's a lot of really neat options. And it's a, it's a really good chance, especially for trainees, to get their hands on some different uh, types of embolics and, and learn how to use them. Yeah, just uh, just to back up uh, one minute, I want to ask you. I'm sure you're reviewing the CT before they they wheel them in. Um, although I'm sure you know it's always kind of a rush deal, right? They're already like at the door. But you're reviewing the CT. Do you already kind of have an idea based off of lo- looking at that CT if you're going to embolize proximally, distally, um, and then what type of embolization uh, d- uh, device you're going to use, or are, is it kind of like you wait you wait and see and see what you get when you're in there? Yeah, I always have a, a plan going into the case of what I, I think I'm going to do. Now, how often yeah. that plan 
gets turned on its uh, head the second I take my first angiogram. It's probably 50 yeah. 50. So, yeah. you know, often I'll have a plug pulled and waiting, uh, you know, to go, and then I just throw it away and we're doing something completely different. So, yeah, I do review the CT. I do try to make a plan, but, you know, it's in, in intraoperatively, things change all the time. Sure. Do you ever go radio access? Yeah, I do do radial. Uh, I would say the minority of patients I do radial, but but definitely do uh, a fair number of them. Uh, it's it's very nice to do, especially if they have a lot of disease or if it's a very obese patient and you don't want to go stick in the groin. Uh, it's super quick, easy to get down. A catheter of choice for that is the Sarah catheter. It tends to work great yeah. uh, for spleens, but you could also just use a standard primary curve catheter or just an old reverse curve of any type. But the Sarah is definitely my favorite. And, you know, it's really nice to do radial. Uh, it's uh, It tends to be just as quick. You can use the same number of devices. The sheath size I use is the same. I use a five, although I, I do usually use a slender. So it's a it's a four French access. And uh, those cases go really well. Yeah. And so for the straightforward celiac, and, and we're going to talk about challenging celiac anatomy here in a minute, but for the straightforward celiac anatomy where you get your, your compi, or sorry, your C2 like right into that splenic, are you then putting a microcatheter through that or are you, do you ever embolize even if you get, if you're able to get your, your C2 out pretty far, do you ever just embolize through that just because it's fast and quick? Yeah, I get. I do. Um, so I would say the majority of cases go like this. I, I do the runs with the C2. I see laceration, maybe some areas that look like some parenchymal blush, but it's not definitive. It's certainly nothing I would I would call extrav or anything like that. And I would say, oh, I'm just going to do a proximal. I have the C2 in the proximal splenic and I deploy a plug or sure. even 035 coils right through the C2. So so that type of case is is a very, very quick, like 10 minute case. Uh, yeah. So that that that's mostly straightforward. Now, let's say I see something on my first run like Frank Extrav or something I'm really concerned about in a specific segmental branch of the splenic. I will put a micro through that and, and go after that um, and do a distal embolization on that particular branch. Okay. Uh, yeah. You know, usually through a micro, usually using coils. Uh, most often detachable coils because we have a bunch of them at my institution and, and that's what I like to use, but you can use non-detachable as, as well. Uh, they're distal arteries. There's no problem with that. And also in those situations, even if I do distal, I, I usually leave a proximal embolic on the way out. The data's mixed on this. Uh, they've looked at this, you know, proximals versus distals, and it seems like they had similar salvage rates. There's there's one study out there that shows if you do both, uh, you do have increased uh, complications and poor outcomes. However, I do suspect that's due to the fact that people who had both done were, were sicker patients. Uh, in reading okay. the study, it looks like they didn't tease that out. So so I think you just have to make a judgment call at the time as to what exactly you're going to amplize on the data at hand. So for, you know, as we commonly will see, the splenic artery can be pretty tortuous. Does that help, does that also kind of help you decide whether, what what uh, kind of embolization device to use, it, let's say torturous versus non-torturous splenic artery? Yeah, absolutely. I think even tortuous, I'm trying to get my parent catheter out there. However, 
you know, if a few seconds of trying, it's not going or it's kicking out, you know, because just extreme tortuosity, it's not going to go no matter what wire and catheter combo yeah. I'm using. I ditch that right away. I'll just park a reverse curve at the origin and then just go through the splenic with a with a microcatheter. Um, you know, time is of the essence of these cases. I generally don't like to keep trying something that's not working. And then yeah. in that case, you know, you're using coils, which is which is great. I mean, there's so many options out there now. There's even the Penumbra Pod device, which is coils that kind of act like a pop plug. Well, so, yeah. so there's still a a bunch of options out there, and and certainly the cases go just as quick, and if not even quicker, because the one thing we know with the Amplats or plug, if you use that, you have to wait for that thing to shut down, and sometimes it takes right. a while. And uh, whereas yep. coils generally go a little quicker. So yeah, let's talk about that. Let's talk about embolization. I, I do want to talk about the variety of different coils out there, but let's talk about endpoint real quick, and then we'll talk about the different um, what what are like the pros and cons of each embolization device. Um, the the endpoint. What what are you looking for? Is it full on stasis or just to slow it down so that you don't see that active bleeding anymore? Yeah, the ideal endpoint, and we're we're going to talk about it, this in the context of a proximal embolization is. I see that my device has blocked flow in the main splenic artery, yet when I do the run and, and on the delay, I see the distal splenic artery filling via uh, the collateralization to the spleen. So right. that's my endpoint. I mean, if I'm now, shouldn't be saying this, but if I'm in a rush and I pop in a plug, I don't always wait the 10 minutes or so t for that thing to go down if I'm confident it's going to yeah. go down. Uh, so I just kind of get out of dodge. However, you know, ideally you want your final run to show that whatever device you have in there has obstructed flow in the main and now you're getting collateralization, you know, and maybe it's worth quickly talking about it. You know, the collateralization to the spleen is is really robust. You're getting a ton via the left gastric through the short, short gastrics. Uh, you're getting a lot through the epiploic, the right to the left, and then to the spleen. And then, of course, what everybody always talks about is if you do use a plug or embolic device, put it distal to the dorsal pancreatic, which will right. then go to the greater pancreatic and then and then fill up the spleen. I don't kill myself in looking for the dorsal pancreatic or, or where to put the plug. Honestly, if even if I put the plug right over or coils right over the dorsal pancreatic, that spleen's not going anywhere because of the multiple, multiple collateral pathways out there. Although yeah. an ideal location is just, just right after that dorsal pancreatic branch. Great. And yeah, so... You mentioned the advantage of placing a plug, which is, you know, kind of one and done, but that the downside, and I've seen this too, is having to sit there and wait to see that, that flow will slow down. Um, whereas coils, you can pop them in, I don't, I would say just as quick and they, and it, ha I, I don't I think it has a more immediate effect. Um, uh, but tell, tell our audience your experience and kind of like the variety of different coils that, that you use. When you're doing these yeah, and, and that's exactly right. I mean, the the plug does take a while to set down. Also, sizing the plug can be difficult because yeah, difficult, yeah. if it's a large splenic artery and you have Gen 4 plugs going up to 8 millimeters, if it's too large, you're not going to get a plug to fit. And certainly I've had, I had a case where we, with a, with a fellow, put in a plug. It looked okay. Took our next run and the plug was slowly chugging out to the distal splenic oh. artery and you're like kind of kicking yourself going, oh, come on. So, yeah. so you, you really have to oversize those plugs like crazy 20, even 40% in some situations. I like those oversized, really oversized, whereas coils give you a lot more, um, uh, you know, flexibility. Uh, yeah. obviously you have much larger sizes, uh, 
you know, I do like a, a fiber coil if I can get it. Um, we have all different types of coils at my institution. I tend to see them shut down quicker with fibers. But but certainly the options out there now are, are huge. We have really, really long coils at, at um, pretty large millimeter sizes. So you can get away with one to two coils. Do the case actually cheaper and quicker. And, and like you said, often you see the result much quicker. The trick is getting a bite, you know, approximately. So it's nice to get a to find a branch that you could dig the front end of the coil into and then you're kind of good or or if you can get a turn and get the coil to kind of grip on the turn instead of it yeah. kind of traveling out that kind of helps uh with with getting it uh, in quickly yeah and you mentioned there's um new ones on the market for example you know we know the the sponsor today shows is the embold i've yet used it um is there an, any advantage to to you to to these new ones that are on the market i know they're fibered but there are other older coils that are fibered as well. Yeah, they're kind of the embolds are kind of the the next generation to the interlock. The interlock was yeah. great, however, was a little more difficult to form than a non-fiber coil, which was a downside. And also, it wasn't completely detachable, right? I couldn't bring it yeah. out and then pull it right back in. And certainly, if the catheter sizing was off or if you didn't flush it well, sometimes they'd come detached. The embold operates. Uh, in a mechanical mechanism where, you know, it's fully detachable. You could put the thing all the way out and pull it back in, and it doesn't really let go until you decide to break the back end of the embold um, deployment device. I've used it uh, quite a bit now. I really like that coil. I think it strikes a nice balance between having a fiber coil, which may be more difficult to form, with the fact that there's less fibers on this. The front end of it's not fibered, so it really goes in first like a non-fiber coil, like a ruby, like a like a balt, something like that, where it forms very, very nicely. The fibers come later, so you get the benefit of a fiber coil, but with the deployability of a of a non-fiber coil. So so far at my institution, I think I could speak for most of my colleagues. That's kind of been the workhorse of late uh, of yeah. our coils. Uh, you know, we really, really like them, and they see seem to strike the nice balance that reminds me of like the glide advantage wire you know you got the hydrophilic front yes. with like the stiff back which i love you know there's like another the thing i worlds. wouldn't uh, yeah i wouldn't be an ir without that i i would quit if i if i lost the advantage wire i, I <laughs> we, we, <laughs> i'd just walk so out if they were on well, back order right I, that's it i'm done i'm gonna find a new career <laughs> You know, that's that's just one of those devices that you've come to really love over the years. And, yeah. and the Embolts really, really strikes a nice balance. And it's exactly like that. Yeah. Peter Horner wanted me to ask you is what is on your playlist when you're doing a splenic embolization? Or is there no time for music? That's an excellent question. I've evolved over the years. Um, my go-to used to be laid-back beach mix on on Pandora, which which brought in a lot of reggae. So it was it was upbeat, yet kind of chill. So it kept me in a good place. I yeah. went through a Ray Charles phase for a while, also same type of vibe. And and now we're just we're just touring '90s alternative rock. Uh, you know, oh that's yeah, my a little sweet bit of spot, Weezer yeah. thrown in there. You know. <laughs> Just the key is just keep it upbeat, you know. Yeah, but that's a really important question, and I I do appreciate it. He was hoping it was metal rock, but I, you know, I you I, know one of my techs loves metal rock, and he'll put it on sometime. I don't know. I can't concentrate on that. I gotta I gotta no, get out of the room. Much. It just it's too much. 
<laughs> I, I like the grunge. The grunge. The nineties grunge is nineties grunge, right? For me. That yeah. that strikes the right balance. Yeah. It keeps going. <laughs> now, of course, if something goes wrong and I start to get pissed off, all the music goes oh, off. It gets quiet off. and everybody oh, gets uncomfortable. Yeah. 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 Especially, you know, what happens a lot of times is trauma surgeries in the window staring at every move, you know, while you're doing the case. I would say that's like nine times out of ten. You know, oh, yeah. The they're there looking at you. control room is packed with people. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're, they're watching. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I have to constantly remind myself this is not the time to dance along or take a break or right or harass the fellow <laughs> too much. But, uh, you know, yeah. when you have good residents and, and fellows, you have that that option of kind of, you know, taking a break and maybe doing a few dance numbers around the room to kind of, you know, keep it light. So, yeah, they don't yeah they don't tend to While like While you're that. waiting for that plug to work. While you're waiting yeah. for that plug, you got to do something. It's either yeah. that or put in coils behind the plug and, you know, got to save Have you money. ever done that? <laughs> yeah. I have, I, no, you know what I do sometimes is, I hate to admit this, I'll take a little gel foam slurry and just, yeah. just, yeah. Pump a little in right behind the plug, and that that gets your your beautiful angiographic result without having to wait the fifteen minutes. How now? Have you? And I, I've had to do that too. Have you ever just done gel foam? Uh, if, for example, uh, yeah, I guess have, a. Have you ever done that? Or and b. Why? What was the reason for just doing gel foam? I haven't done gel foam on a whole spleen. I've done spleen. gel yeah. foam on segments. So, okay. so if I saw a really ugly segment, so a distal embolization, I, I have done on gel foam. But then again, I am still combining that usually with a proximal coiling or plugging. So, you know, yeah. it's, it's never been just gel foam. By itself. But gel, gel foam's nice to have around. Another question from Peter Horner. He wanted to know, is there, would you ever consider a liquid embolic? Is there ever a case for a liquid embolic? Probably not in trauma. People do these. Yeah, that, that brings us more into, you know, other reasons to do splenic yeah. embolizations, which I don't know if you want to go too into yet. But yeah, people do a lot of different things, uh, you know, glue, uh, you know, there's obviously the coils and gel foam, but glue, glue is definitely brought into it. People use Onyx for it. Yeah. Haven't used it, um, but I could see where that may be useful. Uh, to make it To make it cost effective, you have to find a really cheap glue to use. Glue can be quick, but if you're doing a bunch of segmentals, it tends to not be that quick. Uh, there's yeah. a there's an Onyx study just out of Jeff right down the road from me that that looked at using Onyx for these for these uh, devascularization cases, and they found less side effects. Not sure why they had less side effects, but uh, you know they they did report that. So it seems like Onyx is another. Uh, usable option but again really really pricey yeah so it's yeah. something to consider yeah. so not for trauma yeah not for trauma yeah so let's yeah in a minute i want to jump into the non-emergent splenic embolization but real quick as we're you know we receive we you achieve stasis and uh vital signs stabilize everybody's high-fiving are you leaving your sheath in for when the patient goes up to the icu or are you pulling and are you doing closure device or having somebody hold pressure how do you um, how do you handle the sheath afterwards? Most of the time, we're pulling the sheath. Now, if the if the trauma team is there and they say, "Can you leave the sheath?" and we're, we're more than happy to do that as long as we make it clear to them that it's their job to pull now in a few days, whenever right. they're whenever they're done with it. But most of the time, we're pulling it. The vast majority of times at Christiana, we do use a closure device. 
uh, just to free up the room quicker. Our, our problem yeah. is, is more room time turnover rather than, you know, cost sure. of case. So, you know, we have a bunch of different closure devices. We have passive closure devices like the Minx Grip. We also have active closure devices like the, um, and Geoseal and, and the Kelt more recently, which is really great yeah. for these five French cases because they do have a five French device that the patient is pretty much sealed instantly. Uh, you just have to watch it under ultrasound. But yeah. yeah, the vast majority of time is, is using a closure device to, to, to close. Okay. Yeah. That's a great point because, you know, these are not scheduled cases. They're oftentimes brought in in the middle of your day and, and then everything's getting pushed back, of course. And uh, room t- turnover is key, like you mentioned. So yeah, you want to yeah. get them closed up and get them on. T- yeah, yeah. Whenever I walk out of a room and say to my coordinator that we're holding pressure, I get an eye roll and you know a fist shaking <laughs> yeah. at me. So, yeah, we got to keep yeah. things moving. Yeah, for sure. Anything that we left out on um, splenic uh, trauma uh, before we move on to these non-emergent splenic immobilization cases. No, I think I think we hit all the major points. Yeah. yeah. Nothing nothing striking so. me right away, yeah. Let's talk about I I don't know what's more common, hypersplenism or aneurysm, probably aneurysms, when you say. We do a little bit of both, yeah. So Yeah, we Yeah. We could, we could start with hypersplenism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, let's do it. So hypersplenism, I guess let our audience know, you know, how these why these patients are presenting um and in sort of like what the workup is. So, right, there's a, there are a number of reasons why we might embolize a spleen other, other than trauma hypersplenism being one of the major causes, either in a cirrhotic patient, someone with a foaming leukemia, somebody on chemotherapy, or, or somebody with a hematologic disorder. We get a lot of these consults from our, our cancer center and our oncologists. When I first started at Christiana, they weren't sending a lot of these, to be honest. And then, you know, I happened to have a, a discussion with an oncologist just with a low platelet patient that what, they were not able to resume chemotherapy. And I told them about this and they seemed shocked and amazed that this was, was doable and um, sent us a patient, had a, a very robust response in their platelets and and since then we've we've gotten quite a few more uh consults for these um hmm. so so this this is a completely different reason than our trauma and in a completely different way we do these cases so at at the most basic level in in the hypersplenisms platelet sequestration type case we're we're looking to embolize and kill off part of the spleen rather than just slow flow into it they did look at right. doing proximal embos and see if it had any effect on platelets. There were a couple studies showing a little bump, like, but I don't really believe them. In general, the rule is a proximal embo is not really going to have any effect on on the size of the spleen or or the platelet sequestration. So, so now we're talking about actually going into the segmental branches and and taking out flow to certain portions of the spleen. And the, the classic teaching is, well, you take out about 40 to 70% of the spleen, and that will give you a safe bump in your platelets, a reliable bump in your platelets, and even, even in your white blood cell uh, count a little bit as well, without having a ton of complications or not having very high complications. Because this procedure is actually a, a pretty morbid procedure, and I don't think people appreciate how dangerous uh, this procedure can be. 
So yeah. certainly when I get a consult for the oncologist, I, I want to see that patient in my IR clinic before I schedule them for the case because they need to know the oncologist isn't telling them. They're, they're right. telling they're going to do a non-invasive procedure. It's going to be fine. You know, your platelets are going to bump up and then we're going to resume chemotherapy. But I need to talk to them seriously about the morbidity and the mortality even with this procedure in the office. Also explain to them that, hey, it's not going to be a smooth, smooth road. Um, you'll probably be in the hospital a few days after the procedure. You might be in a lot of pain, even though I'm going to give you a ton of pain medications. You're going to be nauseous. You're going to have this post-embolization syndrome. And even after you get discharged, you're going to feel pretty beat up for a little bit. Uh, so so it's not a, a procedure to be taken lightly, uh, as some of the referrers seem to think of it. So when you're doing the, you said about 40%, right, is the target percentage yeah, roughly? Yeah, uh, 40 to 70, depending on what you read, yeah. Yeah. So in your you're in the middle of your procedure, how do you determine percentage? In Do you use cone beam CT and you're looking for, and then you, you do like an injection and looking for, you know, kind of roughly calculating that percentage based off of enhancement? How do you, how do you determine that? I would say the majority of the time I'm not using cone beam CT. However, it is definitely a good thing to use. I just tend to be impatient and want to get out of the room as fast as possible. A lot of people do use cone beam CT to really get an accurate depiction of how much spleen you're actually taking out. I'm doing runs, uh, you know, and trying, and sometimes different obliquities because you can get tripped out on a single view, and trying to estimate based on the the runs how much of the spleen roughly I'm taking out. I know it's not dead-on accurate, and I have used comb beam in the past, but but it gives me a general idea. There's, a, there's yeah. actually a really crazy study out of Japan where they actually looked into this, and they measured the feeding artery and were able to accurately predict how much of the spleen they were devascularizing from taking out that feeding artery. That would be pretty cool to do, although you'd have to start measuring every artery and, you know, doing calculations along the side. So, so although it's neat, I, I don't see uh, a ton of people uh, doing that. But yeah. the the risk is you can go from, and, and certainly I've been in this situation where I was at 40% and I'm like, I want a little more, so I'll take one, and boom, you're at 80% the next embolization. So it can yeah, go from yeah. too little to too much very quickly, uh, so you got to be careful with that. Sounds like a, maybe a neat AI project if somebody could, like, you know, oh, it'd be totally an cool. algorithm, you know? Yeah. I don't know if there's yeah. really product market fit there, or like the need for it, but but I mean, there's definitely a product, uh, market fit, but I don't know if they're like what the, the, the number of hypersplenism cases being done in the United States right. on a yearly basis. Probably be a little low. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but, yeah. but just Eventually, like- though, I mean, the, stuff uh, like that could be applied, yeah. Oh my gosh, totally. You could do a run, it can map out the arteries, you know, do yeah. a spin once in the beginning and then and then kind of estimate based on what you've taken out. I could see that happening, how much spleen you're taking out per branch. But yeah. that's uh, that'll be down the road. But yeah. you know, just like in trauma, there's also a, a different uh, number of devices we could use for this. I, we touched on this already. Going from gel foam, you could use coils, you could use glue, you could use particles, which is probably the most common. I've used yeah. quite a few different things. I have used particles, three to five hundred most often, and then sometimes five to seven hundred if we're talking a range micron. Uh, for for the branch and and that 
that uh, goes very well. I think it's quick. I've also used a lot of coils. I, I really like using coils uh, for this. It, it, it gives me very, very precise control. I can get into specific branches and I can even do tiger striping where I, I do a branch, I skip a branch, I do a branch so that you don't have one large area of necrosis because certainly the, the big fear is, you know, abscess and sepsis after this, peritonitis and all the things that go with that. So if you theory is you don't create one large necrotic area, potentially you're going to you're gonna get around that potential adverse event. So coils yeah. are also very, very good for this. And, and they've done studies looking at this. Again, a lot of this is in the Japanese Asian literature, but um, they've looked at coils versus gel foam and found that the complications were the same and, and the platelet reduction or not reduction increase was also also the same. So it really leaves a lot of options uh, for the IR to decide what they want to use. Yeah. And and so we've got a few minutes left here to just talk briefly talk about the aneurysms, which I would imagine you'd only really use coils. I mean, you can't really use plugs. You can't really use... Yeah. Really, really coils would be the only thing you would use for aneurysms. Would, uh, how, how often are you guys treating those in your practice? We get a few of those a year. I, for, for whatever reason in our practice, we get a lot more hypersplenism than we do aneurysms, but we do see huh. a fair number of aneurysms. Um, and, and you're exactly right. We're using coils uh, to do those, generally long packing coils. The longer, the better, depending on the aneurysm size. Yeah. Uh, we have also used covered stents, you know, in, in, in cases okay. where there's, you know, uh, where we tried to maintain flow to the spleen and just to try something different, to be honest. You use yeah. a cover stent to cover it up, especially if there's a short neck and you feel like you can't seat a bunch of coils on the inside. Also, yeah. another thing we've used is just coil distal, coil proximal, and don't coil the sac itself. Because as we've discussed ah. already, you know, depending on where the aneurysm is, you're not going to kill the spleen by just coiling that small segment out. There's going to be robust sure. collateral flow. So you're you're good where you don't even have to pack the aneurysm sac. So yeah. there's plenty of options when it comes to aneurysms, and they, they can be a lot of fun to do. My favorite is just packing the sack, though, because it it's right. fun to do, and it's it's cool to do. Yeah, and, and so I guess what I've seen people do, like put a like a framing coil in there and then just like pack it with fillers after that for the most part, but exactly. all detachables, right? You gotta, detachables. You got to keep, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever had an issue where like a little end of a coil sticks out and, um, you know, you got to decide what to do or you try and try and snare it or just leave it as is? Cause it's, again, it's the spleen. It's not really going to shut down flow to the spleen. What do you do in those kinds of issues, those kinds of scenarios? Oh, sure. That happens. That happens all the time. <laughs> you know, that's another thing you'd see with GDAs and stuff like that, where you oh, just yeah, have a yeah. little tail yeah. sticking up, you know, and you're like, yeah. it's always on the last coil. You're always like, I think I'm done, but I'm going to put one more in. And then that, <laughs> so, but, yeah. So it's always that one. You know, when talking about the spleen, I, it's not a big deal. I, I would just leave it. Honest to God, yeah. even if a whole coil kind of flicked off and fell into a segmental branch, what? You're not gonna. You're not gonna really worry about that. Right. You're gonna cause more damage, uh, more radiation, more time mucking around and trying to get the thing out. So you have to. Although it doesn't look pretty on your run yeah. or on your pictures, you have to. You know, kind of put it all into perspective when when deciding how to chase things like that. Yeah, splenic artery immobilizations don't always look pretty anyway. You know, I mean, I yeah. have a trauma case other than a plug. Yeah. You know, it's like exactly. <laughs> it looked like a mess no matter what. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
think that pretty much covers it. Anything else that we left behind, uh, Chris, that uh, would be useful to the audience when it comes to splenic reembolization? Uh, no, I don't think so. Just, you know, I mentioned they're going to be hospitalized for a couple days. You know, I do put these patients on PCAs often with yeah. or without a steroid uh, bolster. And then, you know, Toradol is also very useful to to yeah. use. And, um, you know, but but I, and sometimes I get this question often from the patient, do I need vaccinations? The data suggests you don't. Because uh, you still do have remaining splenoparenchyma, which will eventually start to hypertrophy as well, which is sometimes yeah. why you need to do repeat procedures. So you don't need to be vaccinated um, as long as you're leaving some spleen behind, uh, which is a common question. But yeah, right. I think that covers it. Well, Chris, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. To our audience, if you have any uh, questions or, or want to look up any of the resources that we mentioned, the for example, the grading scale from 2018 AAST, we'll put those in the show notes um, so that you can have them ready and handy. And yeah, thanks, thanks everybody for listening. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.